and welcome to episode 108 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we are going to start off by discussing books with bites or books with no bite, which do we prefer? We'll explain in more detail shortly. Mm-hmm. And in the second half, we're going to be comparing the books A Game of Hide and Seek by Elizabeth Taylor and Late and Soon by E.M. Delafield. So, Simon, how are you? What are you reading? What have you been up to? Hi. Uh, yes, I'm good, thanks. As I was just saying before we started, I've just spent the weekend in Somerset at my parents' 40th wedding anniversary party. Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas. Yes. Uh, they haven't actually made it yet because it's next Tuesday, but hopefully okay. they make the next few days and <laughs> <laughs> they do get to the 40th wedding anniversary. So yes, it was lovely seeing lots of people from different stages of their life and different places they've lived and uh, it's not often that I get people say calling me Colin, uh, so that was uh, you know a oh, nice a nostalgic treat. Um, yeah, that was fun. Didn't get much reading then, unsurprisingly. A lot of setting up and setting down and washing up and being charming, but you know, yes, all come, in a day's work for you. All of born, yes. <laughs> uh, I am reading Exit West by Mohsin oh, Hamid. I really like that book. I hear it. Yeah, uh, so it's quite a short book. It's uh about well i guess it's magical realism about people who can walk through doors and appear in different countries but it's really a metaphor uh for the refugee experience and not even particularly a metaphor because they are they are refugees i suppose it's just the way they travel is different uh it doesn't specify where the country is that they're coming from but it's a war-torn country with uh, a lot of militants who are um attacking indiscriminately and taking over parts and you know lots of places that that could be Uh, and then the hero and heroine Saeed and Nadia uh, have traveled to London and there's a lovely sort of um I guess love story between those two as well they're quite sweet they they meet in the beginning of the book and uh yeah it's an interesting read I'm enjoying it mm. um he's got it's, I like the sort of spare elegant writing and occasionally has these lovely little metaphorical flourishes uh, yeah which works well. I remember really enjoying it actually and um my friend recommended it to me and she said it was about refugees and the first bit of the book I was you know before you have that first moment I won't say how the magical realism works because it's a nice surprise when you read it and I was like oh okay okay right this is where it's going and it wasn't what I expected I thought normally you know I hate that sort of thing but I absolutely Mm. loved it really clever yeah it was a nice nice little idea um I'm also reading finally years after everyone else did H is for Hawk by Helen McDonald which I I still haven't read so I'm you know you're ahead of the game (laughs) at least I'm preparing for our um, doubtless will never happen horse versus bird episode (laughs) (laughs) mentioned so often. Well, you you never know, Simon. Nothing's off off limits on this. (laughs) When we're really desperate. Uh, For those who don't know, uh, it's a memoir um, and a biography. It's uh, Helen MacDonald had just recently lost her father, and it's about um, her fulfilling a childhood ambition to train a hawk some of us have different <laughs> some of us have, have different ambitions but that's one there's also a lot about th white who wrote a book called goshawk uh, about doing something similar uh, and i had previously read uh, sylvia towns and warner's biography of th white so i was familiar with some of those biographical elements but i'm yeah i'm enjoying it so, i mean i don't have any ambitions to tame a hawk and I have even fewer ambitions to do so, having read half this book, because it sounds nightmarish. Oh, um, but it is very good, deservedly yeah. well-known. I think one, maybe one of the first of this recent spate of uh, memoirs that are very immersive and about people who aren't particularly famous for other reasons, dealing with difficult things in their lives in interesting ways. There's been lots of those in the past few years. Yes, often connected with some sort of return to nature, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Which I enjoy, yeah. Love them all, yeah. Mm. Uh, How about you? What are you reading? How are you being? Um, I'm okay, thanks. Um, I was just, you know, not celebrating my parents' wedding anniversary. Um, (laughs) That was in April. I'm trying to think how many years they've been married. 45, I think. Oh, gosh. I mean, gosh, I mean, they were children when they got married, but I mean, (laughs) Um, 
I have not been doing very much. I've been well. Actually, I've um, I don't know if I talked about this last time. I don't think I did. Did I talk about the fact that I've been wild swimming? I've already mentioned that. I've become a real bore about it. So I mean, I'm not going to lie. Wild swimming's one of those things that's a bit like white noise. So I wouldn't know. <laughs> I'd just be like, sure, she's been wild. Well, <laughs> if I did mention it on the previous podcast, I apologise. Um, I've become one of those people who's become fanatical about it and therefore is telling everyone and making all my friends come with me. Um, I've been having a lovely time going up to because now I'm not working at the moment. I'm um, job job hunting nobody currently wants to give me a job but hopefully that will change soon mm-hmm. um and i am um, sort of i've got all this time on my hands so i was like you know what i'm going to get fit and i'm also going to cross off a few things on my london to-do lists um having lived here my entire life i still have not um done many things in london actually it's often a source of embarrassment when foreign friends come to stay and they're like oh you know could we i'm like oh god no i've never actually been there um so i decided i'm going to go to hampstead ponds for people who don't know hampstead heath has got three bathing ponds um that were built in the 18th century they used to be reservoirs and there's a mixed pond there's a men's pond and there is a quite famous ladies pond um and it's sort of nestled in the middle of the heath. The ladies' pond in particular is very um, protected in terms of you can't see, if you're outside, you can't see it at all. Um, whereas the men's pond and the mixed pond are more open. So it's like this famous little enclave for women to go in London to just be like private and to swim and um, sunbathe as well. And it's just glorious. So I've been like three times a week for the last month. Um, also it's been a heat wave here I'm sure everybody knows that um, so it's been very hot so it's a lovely t- place to go and cool down it's just been blissful just floating under the trees in a pond uh, and, and feeling like you know you can't possibly be in London at all and there are actually several books about um, swimming in Hampstead ponds that people have written because lots of famous people I mean I've se- also seen several famous people while I've been there famous people who I know are famous but I don't know their names um, <laughs> so I'm just like you're famous um, and so it's, you know, it's, it's a real mecca for people. So there's some really lovely books written about it. So I'm planning on doing a bit of reading about people's experiences, because as you've just mentioned, there's lots of memoirs recently written mm. by people who, you know, haven't done anything particularly noteworthy in their, you know, professional lives or anything to warrant a, a biography. Not that that should be the reason why someone writes biography. It's the ordinary lives that are most interesting to me anyway. Um, but their their memoirs have been about, you know, going through some sort of, of crisis and, and finding um kind of solace in nature and I think it's uh wild swimming is, is certainly there's a few memoirs about that and I've been intrigued by it because I'm a bit of a worse with cold water I've never really wanted to go in um but seeing as it's been like 50 degrees I, I was like well sure I'll do it and it's actually you know really a cleansing experience um and I you know plan on doing some more reading about it and as I'm going to be living in Devon for a month next month, I shall be swimming every day in the sea. So maybe there'll be uh, you'll get a memoir out of out of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think the reason that no one's offered you a job yet is because you talk about wild swim- swimming in all the job interviews? Probably. Yeah, and probably got me down as one of those bores. It's like you either talk <laughs> about running or you talk about wild swimming. Um, <laughs> I don't do running, so. At least I've, I've only just got the one annoying thing. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're enjoying that. Oh, um, thank you. I'll it's... stop talking about it now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only teasing. I've got a, quite a few friends who love wild swimming, um, and I don't love any of the swimming, so, let alone wild swimming. So I, um, it's not for I've everyone. Tempted. No, but I love having a picnic next to a river whilst people enjoy wild swimming. Yeah, well, that's nice. At least you're supportive. Yeah, so I try to. Well, I mean, I'm <laughs> when not being sarcastic, I'm very supportive. Yeah. Um, um, and what are you reading? Well, um, I'm currently reading a book that I am doing this thing where if I've bought a book, I've got to read it immediately. Mm-hmm. So I was recently tempted to buy um, a new book by art historian Francis Spalding, which is called The Real and the Romantic, which is about English art between the wars. Mm. um it's very good it's it's a uh, it's a bit of a doorstopper it's not it's not a portable book let's put it that way so um I'm just sort of reading it before bed and whatever so I've not made a huge amount of progress and also because it's it's one of those books that's really interesting and um every page there's like something on it that I want to google so I have to keep stopping <laughs> googling and then I fall down a google hole and then you know half an hour has disappeared so I'm not making massively fast progress but it's absolutely fascinating if, if you've got any interest in visual art um 
between the wars all the usual suspects are in there but also people that you might not have heard of and the reproductions of the artwork are really good as well so I'm really enjoying that she's a really good writer Frances Spalding and she's written a lot about um, the Bloomsbury group and that sort of period so she's um, very well known so I'm really enjoying that that's my non-fiction read um, I've just finished reading a game of hide and seek for this but before that what did I read I feel like I've been reading those lately and you know to the point where you can't actually remember what you've read which is not a good thing I'm gonna look at my list <laughs> it's right in front of me I'm gonna look at my list what have I read oh yes oh I must tell you about this so um did I, t- I don't know if I've told you I keep telling everyone about things I'm like did I tell Simon because <laughs> I we did see each other the other week in person we I might add so I'm probably getting confused between when I saw you and the yeah. podcast um, I've just finished a book I've had sitting by my bed for a long time. It's called Ossobol. No, um, I don't think you've told me about that name. No. Oh, I haven't. Okay, good. So um, I bought it ages ago and obviously didn't read it. And it's it's not it's nonfiction as well, but it's really interesting. So it's basically the verbatim accounts of this interviews that uh, a Swedish woman made with all of the, with a lot of the inhabitants of a really small village called Ossobol in Sweden. Um, and it's about their lives in this village, or I mean, I guess you, they would call it a town, but for me, it would be a village mm-hmm. um, in terms of the population numbers. Um, it's an old sort of logging town. That was the industry. And the logging industry dried up several years ago. And so now it's it's kind of a village that's sort of caught in this scenario where it's lost a lot of its population it's struggling to attract new people because it's too far away from main towns and things um for people to commute to work realistically um there's also not enough children to sustain the school so it's this it's a real picture of a of a community that's kind of dying in a way in a way of life that's dying but also a wonderful kind of evocation of what it is to be part of a community where everybody knows each other and you've got people in in there who are telling you stories who are like you know nearly 100 and they're telling you about what happened during world war ii and then you've got people who moved yesterday and are talking about wanting to escape the big the the stressful city life of stockholm and move to the mountains etc um and what's really lovely is that as you go through um, you start seeing the connections the the best friend that was mentioned by the elderly lady at the beginning then appears later on and you're like oh she's talking about her and when they used to do that together and um, some of the people have also died since the book was published so mm. that was kind of moving as well to think that their stories have now are now living on and it's kind of presented a bit like poetry so the way that it's been like the words have been curated I hate that word but I'm mm-hmm. using it in this context um, are really it's really interesting and it's 700 pages and I read it in a day that's how compelling oh, wow. it was and I was like crying I was laughing it was just I just thought what a wonderful book that just celebrates the the ordinary people's lives that are actually so extraordinary like some of the stories that these people were telling about the things that had happened to them and how they'd coped with it and you know there's one one of the guys he was a his father was a German aristocrat and he was describing the night before they they came to Sweden from Germany, his father had been taken away and and murdered in front of them. And I just thought, you know, that's... And then he'd walk past him on the street and just think, oh, that's just an old man. I'm just trying to remember the name of the author. Oh, I can tell you because I can see it on the shelf. Marit Kapler is the author and it's um, called... I don't know if I'm... Sorry for anybody Swedish who might be listening if I'm saying the name of the town wrong. It looks like Osserbol to me, but it might be said differently but it's it's amazing highly recommended i should say now before we move on that as rachel said we did see each other recently and she passed on her lovely copy of late and soon so i have a spare copy now to do a giveaway with which i am going to open up to anyone listening so this is this is open to anywhere in the world uh if you contact tea or books at gmail.com saying Yes, I'd like to be entered into that. Uh, let, what, what is it now? It's late August. So uh, end of September, I'll close that um, and send it off to a lucky reader. You'll find out later in the episode whether or not it's a good read, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> whether it's worth it doing. Yeah, so hold off emailing until you've yeah. <laughs> heard more. Um, and yeah, first half, it's a topic suggested by Gina, who got in touch. You might know her at Babs Beloved Books, uh, which uh, is on Instagram. Um and it's not the last time you'll hear from Gina in this episode. But she suggested bite 
or no bite. That doesn't mean do we like vampire literature. Um, I can't remember if Gina actually gave us a definition or not, but let's work with our own. Or, Rachel, what do you, what do you understand by bite in a book? Well, I, what I think I understood was um, in terms of a book that's got some kind of, um, I suppose, conflict in it or some kind of, you know, drama as opposed to a book where it's more sort of, I guess, a kind of book where nothing much happens. Is that how you sort of read it? Yeah, I was thinking about it in, in two different ways. And one was one sort of like that. One basically if something isn't I put imperfect lives. So if, if something is just very happy and everything works out very well, there's no there's no bite there. If there's a bit of unhappiness maybe or a bit of um you know, relationships going awry or or more flawed characters, I would think of that as bite. But but the thing that I thought even more so is the authorial tone. So to me someone like Rose McCauley or Marjorie Sharp, who often writes with a dryness and is slightly scathing about their own characters, maybe, or scathing might be the wrong word, but but undercuts them with a, yeah, is a little ironic about them or uh, shows you their foolishnesses, that sort of thing. But I think of that as having a bit of bite to it as well. Uh, Okay. Yeah. And I thought it, I found it easier to think of authors well, not easier, but, I, but it helped me clarify by thinking of authors I think of who don't have any bite. And the quintessential one for me is Miss Reed. And I know you love Miss Reed. Mm. <laughs> um, and I enjoy reading Miss Reed. But for me, those are the books and the, which have no bite because everyone's quite lovely to each other. There might be one or two cantankerous people who become nice by the end. There's never, there's, the stakes for the reader are never very high. For the characters, they might be. But, but I don't know. Personally, I never get too worried about what's happening to anybody uh and it's all held in a quite a gentle lovely way and there's i'm not saying any of that's negative because there's definitely a time and a place for that uh o douglas is another person who writes books like that and in in a set of mood that's what you want you know you're not going to be alarmed or disquieted by reading it you can feel free to launch in a second to disagree with all of this but for me me, uh they they are gentle sweet stories that uh where nothing really bad happens uh, even if it is, even if there's you know bad things happening on the page, you put the book down and think, well, that was lovely. Yes. Okay. No, I mean, I apologies by the way if you could hear anything. It's um, obviously I'm doing something else while we're doing this. <laughs> um, I'm just doing a quick bit of mending. Um, so I think that might be the noise we're hearing. So you might have to, <laughs> it might be worth not doing that. <laughs> well, I don't think so because I'm not. Okay. All I'm doing is is pushing a needle in that fabric. It shouldn't be. Shouldn't be making any noise. Okay. Well, apologies if you can hear clicking. Let's assume it's. Uh... I've just been told off about this. This is what I mean <laughs> about him bit bullying me. <laughs> Sorry for trying to multitask, Simon. I know that's something that men aren't very good at. But yeah, I'm. I'm literally standing in the way of household labour here. <laughs> of, you know, making making do amend, saving the economy, saving the environment, exactly. and here's me with my terrible chauvinist ways. Yeah, should be jolly well ashamed of yourself um no i mean i entirely agree with you with your assessment of both of those authors and i do think you know certainly it's not a bad thing sometimes that's what you need if you're not Mm -hmm. feeling well if you're going through a bit of a tough time you just want a book that demands nothing of you um and those books are perfect for that i think often however um the there is an assumption that domestic fiction is no no bite is as a definition um and that's often been the reason why a lot of women's fiction has been dismissed um historically because obviously something that happens in the domestic sphere cannot uh, be of any um you know great stakes for example um which obviously we, we know is, is not the case mm-hmm. and um i wonder for example whether somebody might classify dorothy whipple as that sort of author yeah, there's that famous line of I now can't remember exactly who said it, but when oh, Carmen with, Khalil, <laughs> yeah, the the oh, line. Well, there is that. I wasn't actually thinking of that. Oh, sorry. But uh, talk about that for a second, whilst I look up for the line I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, yes. So when um, Virago Press was first set up, um, Dorothy Whipple was suggested as an author, and Carmen Khalil said, "Oh no, we that's that's going to be our our sort of distinguishing mark. You know, we won't go below the Whipple line, as, as in like you know that was." too um lowbrow for them to even consider as as fiction Mm. and um have you found your line i have but keep going and so i think you know in terms of thinking about books that are 
are kind of gentle and easy reads. You know, I think Dorothy Whiffle has often been dismissed as that when actually she's very, very far from it. I would say her books have got a lot of bites. Um, yes. If if you if you see uh, kind of domestic turmoil as being bite, because obviously her books are set in the domestic arena. But, you know, as I always say to people who say this, ultimately all of our lives are lived out in the domestic arena. Most of the drama of all of our lives is domestic drama. Um, because the most drama of humanity is human relationships, isn't it? And where else are there? Our deepest human relationships are in our own homes. Anyway, that's enough of me on that. You give us our... Well, I will go into mine, but I think I think Dorothy Whipple is a really interesting case because I absolutely agree that some of the books have so much about like um, someone at a distance oh, uh, uh, with the sort of infidelity thing. And I've re- recently read Because of the Lockwoods, which has a lot of bite in that sort of uh, animosity one-way yeah. animosity I guess between a, a rich family and a poor family um but the, for me the ones I like less by her are the ones I feel like don't have that like high wages I know a lot of people love but for me oh. that was just a bit too nice and I wanted there to be a what bit do you mean there's plenty <laughs> of bite in that book <laughs> I just I mean I I think it's, it's like I'm saying with Miss Reed like there were there was there was t- turmoil but for me it was all just sort of I know, softened by all the fabrics. <laughs> but the, li- the line I was going to say is actually about Elizabeth Taylor, of all people, who were like a few people, few authors with more bite in, I'd have thought. But um, when Mrs. Palfrey at the Claremont was uh, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, Saul Bellow famously dismissed it by saying, I seem to hear the tinkle of teacups, oh. uh, which you know, it's dismissing domestic labour, but also how brilliant a book, if you can hear the d- tinkle of teacups as you're reading it, how perfectly yeah, has right. it got, a, you know, got across what it's trying to do if you, if it's, you know, overwhelming all the senses in that way. I do actually quite like Saul Bellow, so um, I'm sad that I he can't, I can't say I've ever read any of his books and I don't intend on <laughs> Well, now so. not on principle. I've only read yeah. one um, and I can't remember which one it was, but uh, it was much less sort of I don't know I expected it to be you know big white American man style but it was more more nuanced and sensitive than that yeah. but he obviously wasn't that nuanced and sensitive a person evidently yes um I would just like to say that I finished my mending now so oh I'm thrilled uh thank you so much yeah. um <laughs> I for me I think bite is maybe the opposite of twee thoughts oh well mm, no I don't okay <laughs> great go because I think Twee for me is is kind of hackneyed or cliched or saccharine. And I don't oh, think okay. that something needs to have, you know, I don't think something without bite is necessarily that. I think something without bite is something that's undemanding of the reader. And that mm. is also a kind of, I don't know, how would I put it? Yeah, well, you know exactly what's going to happen. And nothing's surprised and, you know, everybody gets what they deserve and so on and so forth. I don't think that's necessarily going to be tweet. I see what you mean. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I should say this, that, you know, obviously whole realms of literature, like horror or, or graphic crime novels and all those sorts of things, that that's more than a bit of bite. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about here. I yeah. think I think it is... Uh, something that I do often, maybe Gina heard us say it in a previous episode, something that for me categorizes more that domestic sort of book where not a huge amount happens, but sometimes it has that bite in it and that separates it a bit. And as I said earlier about the authorial tone, I think a lot of it is about, you know, the authorial voice. And uh, if there's, if there's an author who is just telling the story and it's rather lovely, um, I do find this, I mean, I love the furrowed Middlebrow imprint, of course, but there are some of their books, uh, maybe even Elizabeth Fair, and like, I do like Elizabeth Fair, but they don't feel, feel to me like they have that bite, whereas someone like Ursula Orange, who they also do, definitely does. And I think that the difference for me there is that that tone where Elizabeth Fair tends to just tell the story and the characters provide you know, their personalities, but the, the, the authorial intervention isn't really there, whereas Ursula Orange is, is very funny in the narrative and quite you know the pe- people aren't presenting themselves uh in the way they intend and this, those layers of what people are actually saying and what they're revealing about themselves when they do it and all that sort of thing yes yeah, so what you're talking about there is is the is irony isn't there Within basically your yeah point. yeah and I, I think you're right um certainly i've not got on with also i i'm, I'm sorry to say simon some of your um british women's 
library books because uh, British libraries women, uh, whatever they're called, what's the name? <laughs> British uh, library women writers. Yeah. Thank you, British library women writers, <laughs> of which Simon is the. Um, What's, what's your official Ser- Series Consultant is my Series Consultant. There we yes. are. Very fancy. <laughs> um, and I'm very proud to be associated with Series <laughs> Consultants of British Library Women's yes. Writers. But some of them I have found to be, you know, a little, might I say, earnest. Um, oh, yes, there are some earnest. Yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and earnest for me would fall into the no bite. Interesting. Hmm. Can you give uh, an example? Was, well, you know, I didn't get on with um, Dorothy What's Her Face. The wonderful, wonderful Elaborate Music by Dorothy Evelyn Smith. <laughs> yeah. I didn't enjoy that at all because I thought it was completely earnest and lacking in any, um, you know, there was no irony, there was no wit. It was all just very, you know, hand, hand-wringingly earnest. And I thought, I can't bear this. It's the one character trait in a person I cannot bear is earnestness. I'll take anything else. <laughs> and normally I'm the same, but that one um, somehow... It's obviously different for me. But yeah, normally, yeah, it's, it's, earnestness is a killer usually for me as well. Well, to be fair, I did only make it halfway through, so perhaps it gets <laughs> um, it's, no, it's certainly not at all ironic, but I think there's, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, carry on. <laughs> I think, I think there's, there's got to be, for me, an ability to, um, to kind of see the humour in a situation or if something's too preachy or didactic, it can be... You know that very much as on this and within a kind of narrative of you know a domestic narrative or a narrative of you know something that's going to have no bite in it. If it's if it's you're then adding on that layer of preachiness, it's it's just not going to work for me. I mean, I what I love, um, I've been reading. Um, I just read Britannia Muse actually by Marjorie Sharp, um, which was the last of my Marjorie Sharps that I aim to read. So I'm a bit sad now because I haven't got any more left on my shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a, a wonderful example of somebody who writes about absolutely nothing most of the time. I mean, like nothing <laughs> of, of any kind of, you know, major importance. It's just the comings and goings of people and, and their lives. But she writes about it with such a, a kind of ironic wit and such a, a sort of, yeah, sh- there's a bit of sharpness to her tone. Um, that, appropriately, yes. <laughs> appropriately, I just thought that. I was like, Rachel, I was going to be clever. Um, <laughs> it all was it, you know. Um, that that kind of lifts it from being what could be seen as domestic melodrama into something that feels much more um, witty, that feels much more subversive, I suppose, in a way. Yeah, Britannia Muse, I think, is definitely at the end of the spectrum of less overt wit. It is quite mm. a sad, sad book in many ways. Whereas some of the ones in mean, the things like The Stone of Chastity at the other end about a professor coming in to try and find a stone that women used to stand on and they'd fall in the river if they were unchaste, which is just a knockabout comedy, essentially. So she does have a yeah a spectrum, but yeah, she never does anything that is. Well, I, was gonna say, I mean, Britannia Muse is probably the nearest she gets to earnestness, but there's enough, uh, enough in there to make it not. I guess, I guess for me, uh, stuff that I would describe as not having bite tends to maybe fall down the more romantic, in, in yes. diff- you know, lo- you know, in many senses of the word romantic. But if it's if there's something that where people just fall in love and everything's very sweet, um, or what I really find annoying is if just everyone is lovely and obliging to each other in a book, and you know, if there's a household servant who just loves serving because she's so loyal and everyone's remarks to each other. In fact, I've just read Anne of Avonlea. Uh, an audio book, hey. <laughs> the second Anne of Green Gables book, uh, and I was—I re- read a blog post about this, and I was very nervous about putting this out because I love Anne of Green Gables, and I'd never read any of the others, and I thought Anne of Avonlea was dreadful. And thankfully f- for me, almost everyone who read the blog post agreed that it was much weaker, and they say the third one, the series is better. But what I—and I th- the reason I didn't get on with that. Is because it is that lack of bite. Anne has lost her spirit. Uh, everyone's just lovely and nice to each other, and everyone learns lessons and improves. And she's become this very moralistic teacher who just wants everyone to become a better person. And they do after a few moments in the in the rays of sunshine of her of her goodness, mm-hmm. uh, which is the opposite of the first book, where she's she's not immoral there, but but she's spirited and forceful, and she's trying to do the right thing, but in a calamitous way and. That's the sort of thing I love. Yeah. 
yeah, I mean, I take your point on on Anne of Avonlea. Um, yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting because you know you and I both enjoy very much the same sorts of things, um, mm. and I think the reason why we like the period of literature we we like so much is because these are novels that have very kind of, um, I suppose underhanded humour in a way mm, and mm. um a kind of I suppose a a wryness about them, you know, of looking yeah. at, at the everyday life but from a a kind of slightly um not sarcastic perspective but a, a, a kind of knowing perspective, I suppose, yeah, and of, yeah. of showing the foibles of reality when people try and get a bit too preachy about it or whatever, then it's not as, as much fun. I think for me books without bite in are um sort of gentle books books that kind of seek to purpose but they're not necessarily bad books but they're books that are aren't going to challenge you as the reader and I think if you're thinking about what makes a reading experience enjoyable most of the time as a reader you want to have your expectations challenged you want to, to feel that you're going to side with a particular person or you're going to have to dislike a character or or kind of you know mm have to to challenge your own moral compass in some way like you said you know if all the servants are lovely and whatever else it's like well uh, the reality is you know they their servants wouldn't always be happy they would be gossiping behind closed doors we would have to think about whether it was actually right for the, the way that they were being treated or whatever and if you're not having to engage yourself as a reader in in the world it can become boring quite quickly but then it's interesting that sometimes I don't mind that um but I really have to be in the mood yeah, and I've had that where I've, you know, I've started an O'Douglas novel and I thought, oh, I just can't bear this. And then when I'm just tired uh, or, you know, it's been a tough week, it's like, I just need that. That's what mm. I want. I, I just want something which, you know, I know that everything's going to be fine. Yeah, I mean, I call them hot water, hot water bottle novels. You know, yeah, that's what yeah. misread is like for me. I love a misread when I'm just like, I'm tired, I'm ill, or I'm just like, you know, all my period and I can't cope. And it's just like, I just need something like that that yeah. I can just sink into. And I don't have to think about it. I don't have to, um, you know, I don't have to make any decisions or choices. I don't have to work anything out. I don't have to read between any lines. It's all just there for me. Um, but in terms of what makes a good book, I mean, it's a question, isn't it? Because they're still good books. But yeah, they, they're still trying to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, I mean, let's not get started on the question of quality, but I mean, (laughs) I I think there's a time and a place for both. But I mean, if we're coming to a decision time, I think um, for me on a day-to-day basis, I think my brain would turn to mush if I only ever read books with no bite. (laughs) Yes. And similarly, I mean, it's probably quite clear we've been heading this direction. I will also go for bite. Thank you, Gina, for getting us to think about that. Uh, It was interesting to see exactly what we meant. And in fact, I'm going to hand over to Gina now because she sent us a really lovely voice note. Everyone's always welcome to send a voice note into tea or books um, at gmail.com. And if you aren't sure exactly how to do that, give me a message and I'll try and guide you through. But Gina uh, has done. Um, I'll play that now. And there's a couple of questions. Hi, Simon and Rachel. I've been meaning to send you this message for a long time, so I'm finally getting to it right now. The Tear Books podcast has literally saved me for the past nine months. My husband at age 48 was diagnosed with both esophageal and colon cancer in November, and the past seven or eight months have been really the most difficult we've ever had to face together in the 29 years we've been married. Luckily, he was able to have radical surgery, and now he's in remission for both cancers, so we're really grateful. But while I was in waiting rooms, hotel rooms, or hospital rooms, I always had your soothing, calm, and kind voices in my ear while listening to your podcast. I had just found out about your podcast about 10 months or so ago, And then since then, I've listened to almost every episode, and I'm pretty sad that I only have 20 more to listen to. (laughs) They're so good. (laughs) Even though you don't know me, in my mind, I feel like we're close friends. (laughs) 
And it's so funny because whenever I listen to your podcast, I always agree with one of you or the other. So sometimes I agree with Rachel about a book and sometimes with Simon. And it almost feels like it's like 50%. So that's why I feel like this podcast is so perfect for me. And when you both love or dislike a book, I usually almost always feel the same way. So it's the most wonderful feeling to feel like I connect with someone or two people with my book taste, which I have not found until recently. And I also wish I lived in England so that I could give both of you a big, huge hug. But the other reason why I was sending you this message was because I had a couple of questions. So one of them is, what would you consider to be a perfect book reading day if money was no object, but you only had 24 hours to enjoy it? What would you do? What would you eat? Who would you go with? What would you read? And what would you buy? So I'm very excited to hear your answers to that. And the other question is, would you rather read a book about a familiar place and time or a completely new to you setting and timeline? So um, I'd love to know what your thoughts are about that. Thank you both so much for bringing such peace and joy and friendliness and tons and tons of awesome book recommendations to my life. My TBR has grown so much that I'm not sure I will ever read all these books, but it's such a great feeling to know that there are so many wonderful books to be reading in the future and something to look forward to. Um, you have no idea how much the TR Books podcast means to me, and I wish, I, I wish there was some way to express um, how much comfort you've brought to me since November. So much love to both you, to both of you, and I hope you have a lovely rest of the summer. Bye. Thank you so much for saying that in, Gina. That was really lovely. We're first of all, we're so pleased that your husband is doing better and we hope that continues. Yeah. yeah. Um, and we're very grateful. And I did I did cry after you sent that message. So I was very touched. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really pleased that Teal Books helped in a little little way. Yeah. Uh, as you're going through that. So I mean, to be honest, I'm shocked that our <laughs> help anyone. Um, and I feel now that I'm entirely justified in not preparing for this podcast in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> clearly, what I'm doing is working. So, hmm, okay, <laughs> <laughs> so that's not the takeaway message I would have recommended. But redeem yourself, Rachel. With what is your perfect book day? The first of Gina's questions. Um, right. Well, a perfect book day for me would always involve book shopping in some way, shape, or form. So probably a perfect book day for me would start with getting, I normally wake up about seven. Um, I would make myself a cup of coffee and get a biscuit and I would go back to bed and I would read my book for about an hour. Then I would get up and then I would go shop, book shopping. Um, not immediately, obviously, because the shops wouldn't be open yet. <laughs> about the practicalities of this plan. Um, and then I would um, do a little circuit of my favourite bookshops in London and then obviously because this is a day where we don't need to worry about like time or space or you know that kind of thing um I would go to Hay on Wye which I've never been to yes and I would finally get to to go around um all the bookshops in the town and enjoy that and then from there I would go obviously in my magical time machine um or like whatever some kind of Harry Potter Tele teleportation portal. device yeah, yeah. Um, I would go to the wonderful bookshop that is in an old train station, which is in Annick, um, which I think you've been to as well, haven't you? I have, yeah. Barter Books. Yeah. Barter Books, which is just incredible. And I would spend a very long time in there. And then my dream that I've never achieved uh, as of yet, but perhaps at some point I will, I've always wanted to go to um, Portland Books in mm. Portland, Oregon. Um, I've never been to that part of the world yet. So then I would obviously manage to magic my way across the ocean <laughs> to go to the bookshop there. And then I would come home and I would be surrounded by my pile of new purchases. And I would take much joy in looking through them all. What I love to do is when I get home with books, that I've secondhand books that I've bought, I like to go through and see if I can find anything that anyone's left inside. Um, yes. 
increasingly these days you don't find anything i think a lot of the booksellers go through them first but sometimes in stuff from charity shops you you do i really love seeing that like old receipts and things like that um and then i would probably start reading one of them and that would be my perfect book day lovely i think mine would be quite similar because some people might listen and think they would just those would all be about reading but mine would also have to be about book shopping preferably with a group of like-minded book friends you're very welcome Rachel to my dream day um but not I say like-minded like-minded but I always manage to get to the books they want first (laughs) so I don't don't want to watch people actually I don't like shopping with you because every time I have been shopping you've picked up something and I've been like oh (laughs) <laughs> maybe in this perfect world there's multiple copies of all the books yes. that we're after yeah. um uh i do want there to be plenty of reading time but uh and you know book discussions so we can all show what we've bought and talk about mm-hmm. that uh so yeah, yeah there's, there's plenty of time for reading but I, d- I think a day where it's just me and a pile of books for the day i just get a bit overwhelmed with time and think i'm you know, it just slips away or get distracted or something. So I like, like maybe half an hour here and there for reading. And then maybe in the evening, around a fire somewhere, we can all just open a murder mystery each. And you know, that's a lovely way to end off the day. Oh, yeah, I definitely want to be there for that bit. Yeah, you're very welcome. Of course, there is copious tea throughout this. Yeah. And I've got a cat on my lap. Same. Oh, yes. Yeah. And Gina mm-hmm. asked about what we would eat during this day as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think probably I would find somewhere that had, I mean, is there a book themed cafe in London? I don't think there is. Oh, actually. The, the London Review of Books uh, bookshop's yes. got a nice cafe. London Review of Bookshops ha- has got a very nice cafe. Um, and that would be a very nice place to sort of sit. And I mean, there would have to be lots of tea and cake involved. In yes, definitely tea and cake. Um, yeah, and scones with cream and jam. Perfect. Yeah. Lovely. And maybe, in fact, we will save the second question for the next episode or a future episode because yeah. uh, we don't t- t- use everything that you've kindly given us in this one episode, Gina. Okay. Um, so thanks so much for getting in touch. I will also say Thank thanks you. to Chris for your lovely email, which I forwarded to Rachel as well. Uh, yes, really appreciated so reading that. Um, lovely. So now on to two rip-offs of Persuasion. <laughs> it's A Game of Hide and Seek by Elizabeth Taylor. And late and soon by E. M. Delafield. Um, shall I do late and soon? Is that because you can't remember a game of hide and seek? Yeah, yeah. Yes, you may. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, late and soon was E. M. Delafield's final book, uh, and it it does have a quite persuasiony idea to it, I guess. So, the uh, heroine is Valentine. She is an elderly widow, but I think she's probably about 40. So, I, don't, I don't think she's even 40. I think she's about 38 or something. <laughs> yes, when I first read this, when I was 15 or 16, she seemed very old. Now she does not. <laughs> um, she, uh, she's she been a widow for a, a, yeah, a few years, and she has got two daughters, uh, one of whom is very sort of independent and feisty, the other one's a bit... Um, quieter i guess uh and she hears tell that an irish colonel called rory lonergan uh very stereotypical irish name but rory lonergan uh is coming back to the area and she once loved him and he her but it things f- did not go well uh and now as this widow and mother she's thinking will the flame be relit what would we like to see him again uh, and we see what happens as they reunite um and there's a bit of tangled web with daughters romantic lives as well um yeah i'll leave for now yeah um so game of hide and seek is very similar in it's about um starts off with harriet and vz vz don't know you've never come across mm, that name i've been before. saying vz in my head but i don't know yeah probably you're right vz um are kind of the same age they're both 18 they're in the countryside. Um, Harriet lives with her widowed mother, and Vesey is visiting um, his aunt and uncle. Who his aunt Caroline is Harriet's mother's best friend, and Harriet spends all her time at her mother's best friend's house because she's a governess for their their children. Because she's useless at everything, she can't find a job. She can't get to university because she's not very clever. She's a bit of a um, you know, she's been a failure at life, really. <laughs> and um, in her mother's eyes, anyway, he's been a militant suffragette and there's hope for more for her daughter. Mm. And um, 
Harriet has this sort of passionate love for Vasey, but she's very shy and she she can't say anything. And Vasey is also very um, kind of enigmatic, but um, very difficult to read. And she's never quite sure how he feels. And they have a couple of moments, you know, in the barn or whatever, where they they sort of kiss each other, but nothing's ever said. And um, he's only there for the summer. He leaves, and Harriet is left. Um, you know, pining for him and during that time her mother dies and she gets very close to the man who lives opposite Charles who's in his you know really old he's like 33 um, <laughs> and he lives with his mother who is a former actress and is, is quite difficult and Harriet in her you know distress and everything finds herself um, with him and they get married and then we fast forward several years when Harriet is also suddenly apparently middle-aged and past it in her late mm. 30s um, <laughs> with a daughter her, herself now and Vasey comes back into her life and it's what will happen um, now whether you know um, is she able to I suppose control herself or will there be um, a rupture in her life if she decides to go off with him so there we are it's interesting both of them, both of these books are rereads for you. So did you feel differently about them this time round? So I read Late and Soon when I was um, probably about 16 and I had not read it since. And I read Game of Hide and Seek maybe 10 years ago. Um, so yeah, about 26. And uh, with Late and Soon, I had remembered it being more somber than most of Ian Delafield's novels. Um, and I wasn't, I enjoyed it, but the, the story of, of a romance of, again, again, as I saw them, elderly people was uh, <laughs> not the, the most interesting thing to me. And then A Game of Hide and Seek, as you mentioned just now, I even though I reread it less than a month ago, I remember so little about it and I remembered very little the first time I remember that the opening scene of a playing or you know towards the beginning where they're playing hide and seek and I'd remember the outline and, and the same is true now I think uh it hasn't really changed my opinion I just think it's um it's a novel where it really is just about the minutiae of relationships between people uh and the the only plot events are the things that you've just said I think is probably fair or broad, broadly um so it's a sort of novel that I think is much more experiential whilst you're doing it than something that you then, at least with me, stays with me in detail. Whereas late mm. and soon, uh, some of the details had stayed with me even over the 20 years. Um, curiously, I won't say how it does end, but curiously, I had remembered it ending the opposite way <laughs> to oh. the way it does. But uh, So I don't quite know why. Um, so that was a surprise, a twist ending for me. Uh, <laughs> but... Yeah, I think it's interesting how they they have this very similar pattern, but Delafields doesn't have any moral quandary, and or at least has some moral quandaries. But it doesn't have that whole "should I leave my husband? Should I have an affair?" Because she is widowed, and this, this it's yes. quite black, you know, it's quite black and white. Whereas Taylor's has got this: like, is this first love worth ending a marriage for? Is it is it okay to still be interested in him when I'm with this husband, even if I find him quite boring? And it was just a her sort of I had to marry someone style situation and Taylor is I guess much more comfortable in that moral gray area than than Delafield is in at least in this novel yes and I couldn't help thinking when I was rereading it that I know I've never I've never read it I've got I've had it for years mm. that Nicola Bowman wrote Elizabeth Taylor's biography and yes. during the writing of it she discovered that she'd had a long-standing affair um, and her children tried to stop her from publishing the biography because they didn't want it known. And mm. I think that um, perhaps explains a lot about um, her attitude in the book. Um, I think what was interesting for me is I absolutely loved to game of hide and seek the first time I read it. And I think mm. I read it about 10 years ago as well. And I really didn't like it this time around. Oh, interesting. Tell mm. me why. I found it incredibly boring. Um oh. Yeah, to I've just the thing is Harriet is so colourless as a character um, that there's really nothing you know she's just one of those people that just sort of drifts along in life and life happens to her and she makes no active decisions about anything and it's all 
and her love for VZ is all based on nothing, really. I mean, it's just like this weird obsession that that she has. And then I think it would have been more interesting as a novel if when VZ had come back when he was older, he hadn't loved her. And yeah, that, you, yeah, you yeah. saw the kind of the corrosiveness of this kind of unrequited love and how that had, had spoiled her life. But I think but by having him apparently love her desperately too and he's been desperately in love with her for the last 20 years and i just thought based on what um yeah, yeah i'm not they were a, children weren't they so, yeah, yeah. Like, i'm not a romantic person like that in in terms of i'm like i'm sorry i don't believe in you know you meeting your soulmate and never saying two words to each other and yet you just know i mean i just think that's nonsense and it's uh, for me i just thought this is silly i can understand somebody holding on to an ideal of someone for a very long time and yeah. you know that choosing to believe in that ideal rather than the life that they have as a sort of escape mechanism that's interesting to me um but having it turn out to be this kind of dual thing for me it didn't work into based on the characters that had been created Vasey seemed to be an utterly self-involved person and he is in many ways and mm. I didn't necessarily believe the adult he becomes interesting yeah mm. yeah I think when I first read it I remember really disliking it for the first third and putting it down and then going back to it and loving it and I think that's often with Elizabeth Taylor I have to be in the right mood for really sort of quite viscous writing where it's mm. um it's beautiful if you're in the mood for it and it's annoying if you're not and i usually anyway, you know if i'm in the mood for it and i enjoy sort of going slowly through it and enjoying those her really perfect sentences but um sometimes i just wanted to get through that to, to something that's actually happening uh and then yeah as you say in this one if if there is that um difficulty with the plot because i i'm always slightly frustrated i'm similarly cynical about the romance at first sight and forever after but also if there's not really been sufficient reason to stop the romance happening, because you know if they were this important to each other, it wouldn't have been that hard for them to actually do it. <laughs> you know, no, well, this is this together. is the thing. I mean, I didn't believe that element of it. I just thought this is ridiculous. There's no actual reason why you two couldn't have been together. You're both from you know each other from a young age. Your families are both equal in consequence. Like there's no there's no barrier in in your way here. I was gonna say I was gonna find that a bit frustrating in late and soon where um, Lonigan brings up class as a reason that they can't be together because I recognise that class can be a reason that people or not, not a reason it can't be together, but a reason why things might be difficult. But for him, he's just like, no, we'd never cope with it. We never, he's not really particularly willing to try. And all the things she brings up, it's like, well, we could do this. And he's like, no, it just wouldn't work. And, and that I found a bit frustrating. Yeah, I think Leighton soon, I mean, I enjoyed many elements of it, but I also, I found the characterization quite unrealistic, particularly of, um, what's her name? The main character. Valen Valentine. Valentine, thank you. Um, like, can I say about the the big issue or not? Should I? <laughs> well, we know it quite early on. We know it quite early on. So basically, the issue is that um, Rory has been sleeping with her daughter, obviously not knowing that she is his mother, as uh, her mother, because um, she has a different surname now and everything. Yes. So the the whole reason he turns up at the house is because her daughter brings him home for the weekend obviously planning on having a weekend of like wanton sex in her mother's house <laughs> and then it turns out that you know obviously they know each other i mean what are the chances mm. and are being billeted in the house of the woman again you spent one night with of like standing by a fountain feeling romantic with 20 years ago <laughs> in rome and you've always remembered ever since um and I mean, it's all very melodramatic. And the thing is, Valentine is like, yeah, okay, so I know you've slept with my daughter, but that's fine. I'm okay with that. And I was like, would you be though? I'm not sure I would be okay with that. Yeah, she's very okay with anything and she's quite yeah. tolerant of, of everyone around her. And in a way that I think often happens with Ian Delafield herons, if they're not monsters, <laughs> then they are yeah. quite often people who find refuge in being uh ironic about things in their own mind and but you know a bit on the surface being very accepting so i think she, she is like a bit like that she's you know she's intelligent and she isn't taken in by people's deceptions or even their self-deceptions um but 
people around her would never know that. I think a lot of her heroines are underestimated people. Yes, no, absolutely. I don't disagree. But I think it's um, her ability to brush aside all mm-hmm. of these things, I think, is is quite unrealistic. I think there would have been a lot of also drama from the daughter about it and a lot yes, of upset yeah. and a lot of like, you know, I'm sorry, but sleeping with someone who's also slept with your daughter. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like there should be a lot more, dis- there should have been a lot more discomfort. And I was just like, I don't believe how easily she's just been like, that's fine. Um, I do think it was interesting reading it how she wrote about it. I, I could be wrong about this, but the way I read it, she wrote, was writing about it so carefully that you could believe that they hadn't slept together if you wanted to. It was, it was, it was sort of hinted at. But, it's, it's, it, she asks and, and, and she says, oh, mother, how can you ask that sort of thing? And all that. Oh, but it seemed very overt to me. Okay, maybe I maybe this is the Rorschach test <laughs> for, for naivety. Um, so I thought that was unrealistic. And um, also the fact that, you know, again, they don't know each other. And yet mm, immediately mm. it's like, we're going to get married. Um, and I was just like okay well I mean you might just want to stop and think that through for a second and maybe you know spend a bit of time together before you have to get married and I know there's the rush because it's wartime and whatever but I just I just thought it was all a bit sort of to me I mean E.M. Delafield does have the ability to be an incredibly sensitive and well kind of um what's the word I'm looking for I can't think it's too late um she she's manages to kind of write things with a kind of subtlety whereas this mm-hmm. one feels like some of her novels are quite melodramatic and this for me was a melodramatic one the most interesting thing I found in it was the fact that it was written during the war and it was about living in the midst of the war and mm-hmm. I found the war details very interesting um yeah I think it would have been interesting if she'd sort of hinted at this uh, suddenness to want to recapture that to be about you know uh, worrying about lost youth or about some misplaced grief for her her, her dead husband but those things weren't really there it was, it, if they were they were deep below the surface um, because she doesn't yeah, seem particularly to miss her youth she's quite happy being older she just wants yeah. to have a different old age it's very convenient as well that you know she never loved her husband and she feels no grief for him so no. <laughs> um, it's I just, you know, it's all very, everything just fell into place far too conveniently. I thought, actually, there is a very interesting story underneath here and lots of, of different complexities that could have been. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoyed reading it, actually. But, yeah, I really um, enjoyed yeah, reading it. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't, I, I was very um, engaged with it and, um, and with the characters, but I just, I got to the end and I thought, really? Because um, <laughs> uh, this was far too, it's, everything was far too easy for everybody. Uh, oh, one sort of stray note is I read this, uh, as I say, about 20 years ago, and I, I had read uh, Frost at Morning by Richard Crompton around the same time. And they were two of the first books from this period I'd read. And both books have this recurring image of someone getting their Chinese shawl trapped in the part, part of a chair. And in oh, my head, this was all that happened in the 1930s and 40s. We were constantly getting Chinese shawls trapped in furniture. And I don't think I've seen it in any novel since, but in those two, which I read consecutively. Um, a real feature. Just a little side note. Um, and may I also please read a line from A Game of Hide and Seek that I have loved ever since I first read it. I think it's on my Facebook quote wall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the meat has overexcited them, Harriet thought. She had always heard that it inflamed the basic instincts. <laughs> so, as a vegetarian, I can't help but agree. <laughs> um, and she does have lots of very good lines. Oh, uh, she's a here. magnificent yes. writer. And I think, you know, her writing is is beautiful and her observation is, is brilliant and the way that she describes things and the way she describes people and her ability to capture that kind of emotional incompetence of a certain class mm-hmm. of English people is brilliant. But I think the issue for me with this book was that it didn't go anywhere um, quickly enough. And when it does get going, it's all happening so deeply under the surface that it's like it might as well not be happening at all. <laughs> well, if you have not been put off the idea of owning Late and Soon <laughs> by Ian Delafield, just a reminder to please email tealbooks at gmail.com, just put Late and Soon in the subject line or something like that, uh, and say that you'd like it with your address. And again, that can be anywhere in the world. And we'll draw at the end of September. But time to make our decisions. A Game of Hide and Seek or Late and Soon, Rachel? 
Well, they're both flawed in my mind. But for enjoyability of reading, I would probably go for latency. Yes, as I was re- sorry, as I was reading these, I was thinking. I think Elizabeth Taylor is the better pro stylist. A game of hide and seek, quite possibly a better novel. But I definitely preferred reading late and soon, and so I'm going to choose that. Yeah, I mean, I was disappointed in my response to Elizabeth Taylor this time round, but I'm hoping that it's just a dud because I did read another of hers on holiday and didn't like it. I'm like, maybe I, maybe I've out. If I've outgrown Elizabeth Taylor, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm sure you haven't. I'm sure you haven't. No. It just has to be in the right place. Yeah. So in the next episode, we'll actually do two books we hinted at last time, which are Heatwave by Penelope Lively and Heat Lightning by Helen Hull. And by the time we record that, it'll probably be autumnal and cold again. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, we can have those last vestiges of summer in reading about heat in those places. Yes. Thanks so much for listening. Yes, thank you. And thanks again to Gina for your lovely message and for the, well, giving us most of the content of this podcast. Yes, basically. Thank you. Uh, and anyone who's got topic suggestions, do get in touch. Uh, same email address, tealbooks at gmail.com. We'll speak thank to you next you. time. Bye. Bye. Bye.